we were headed to New York City, and there was a, a bunch of us going from a church I was working at at the time, and it was a, a bunch of students who just graduated from high school and some early college uh, students who were all part of this trip. We were going to help a, a church in New York City do some programming there, and we just wanted to give them a hand, and the trip was winding down, and everything was everything had gone really well, but I was excited to get back home and Decided to not chaperone 17 to 20-year-olds any longer. I mean, some of them didn't really need a chaperone, and some of them were children. And uh, we flew into LaGuardia because it was the, the cheapest airport to fly into in New York. And if you have never had the privilege of flying into LaGuardia, I would recommend keeping it that way as we... Arrived at the airport, we discovered that the air conditioning wasn't working, and it was the middle of July, so that was pleasant. And I hate to be hungry, and I hate to be hot. Uh, those are two things that I absolutely despise. I hate to be hungry, and I hate to be hot. Those are just two things that if I'm uncomfortable, it takes more than a Snickers, trust me, to snap me out of either one of those things. And we got there a couple hours before our flight was going to take off. And I've never been the guy that wants to be the first on the airline. Unless you're flying southwest where you're herded like a bunch of cattle and you have a number, then you do want to get on the airline so that you can find a, hopefully a decent seat early on. But if you have a seat, I mean, really, you're going to be on that airline long enough. Just take your time. But without air conditioning in the terminal, I was all about getting on that plane. And so I'm watching my watch, and I'm counting down until when it's going to be boarding time and getting excited. And then the time came, and it was not boarding yet. Started looking around, and there were, there were people from the airline on the phone, but they weren't doing anything to start to get people in line. After a while, they let us all know that the plane had mechanical problems, and there was no way it was going to be able to be fixed and that our flight was canceled. But not to worry about it, that everybody on the flight was able to be put on a later flight later that day, a mere six hours, <laughs> in an unair conditioned undergoing renovations, LaGuardia Airport. So about four hours in, I decided I just need to pull a Houdini and just disappear without telling anybody. And so I just disappeared, and I, I went and I got some food. It didn't help. Maybe it was because I was still hot. I don't know. I was just a little bit on edge. But finally, the time comes for us to board the second plane. And boarding begins, and everything goes on without a hitch. And then we get in the plane, and the plane backs away, and we take our line, and you know airports and big cities, you're going to be in, in a line for a little while to, before you get to take off. As other, a lot of other planes are taking off ahead of you, and other planes are going to be landing, and they've got to maneuver all that on the, the tarmac, on the runways. And so we're sitting there, and we don't move for about an hour, and we don't get an update. And finally, after about an hour, the captain comes on and says, well, folks, there's some weather going on that's coming into the area. We're going to be delayed about 30 more minutes, but hopefully we'll be able to take off in about 30 and get you to your destination. 
45 minutes later, the captain came back on. Let us all know that the hopes of taking off were not going to happen. And that there were no other flights headed out that night and that we would be able to get up, put on other planes the next day to go to our destination. So they unboarded the plane and everybody swamped on the desk. And if you're ever traveling and you find yourself in one of these situations, never go to the nearest desk. It's just a nightmare. Find a desk a little further down that's staffed. And, and that's what I did. And I explained, hey, I was on this flight and they've canceled it and we need, you know, we're, nothing's getting out until tomorrow. We need some hotel accommodations for 20. And he said, well, sir, this is a weather delay and there's nothing that the airline has to do for you. And I said, well, that may be the case this time, but we were on the earlier flight that was mechanically delayed, so we're going to need some hotel rooms. And he said, well everything is booked. There's nothing I can do to help you. And I didn't leave the desk. I just stood there for a minute. And he said, can I help you? I said, absolutely, you can help me. I need hotel rooms for 20 people. I've got 17-year-olds who are not spending the night in an airport that is unair-conditioned and undergoing renovations. And if something happens to one of those 17-year-olds, trust me, I will spend every ounce I have within me telling anyone who would listen, it is your airline's responsibility. And I will just say it over and over and over again. Is that really what we want to happen here? So let me see what I can do. I said, thank you. He didn't respond. I found that a little rude. I said, thank you. He didn't say, you're welcome. That's fine. He typed. I said, well, sir, I was able to secure you some rooms at the Marriott. And suddenly my whole mood changed. I went from the LaGuardia Airport with no air conditioning and undergoing renovations to the Marriott. This is fantastic news. And my whole countenance changed. And I said, sir, thank you so much for getting us rooms at the Marriott. He said, Clarion. I said, I said, excuse me? You said Marriott. He said, no, sir. I said, the Clarion. I said, no, you said Marriott. He said, we've got you rooms at the Clarion. I'll take them. Get the vouchers. Get our bags. You know you're in trouble when the hotel shuttle, one of the headlights doesn't work. <laughs> we boarded the van. We got to that hotel. And we prayed. We prayed. See, it was a misunderstanding that I had. And it altered my entire outlook. And this morning, as we continue followers, if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. And once you've downloaded, you can enable the events feature, either by typing in zip code 54201 or by enabling your locations there. Lakeside Community Church will pop up. If you have a traditional Bible with you, we're going to be in the second book in the New Testament, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 17, as we continue our look at followers today. And what we're going to see today, and as we continue our look at followers, is we're going to see the one who wouldn't follow Jesus. And a lot of this is one of the most misunderstood things that Jesus has ever said. But it was a misunderstanding that would cloud 
the encounter that this person would have with Jesus and ultimately arrive at a place where he would not follow God. Mark 10, starting verse 17, we read these words. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let me set the scene for you. Jesus is leaving. He's going on a journey. A man, that's all we're told about him at this point in time, a man runs up to Jesus, gets on his knees before him, and says to him, Good teacher, looking up at him, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This is the universal question. This is the question that has plagued every single one of our minds. It's the question that has plagued all of humanity from the beginning. Because within all of us is this innate understanding that there must be more. There's this innate understanding that there is something greater than the day in and the day out. There's something more to our existence than we see. And he recognizes that Jesus has the answer. He recognizes there's something different about Jesus. And so he kneels before him, and he asks the universal question that has been on all of our minds, is how do we get life everlasting? How do we get salvation? What must we do? Can it be earned? Can I buy my way in? Is there something I can do to deserve it? How can I get it? This is the universal question. And the only problem with this question being asked is Jesus answers the question two verses earlier. In Mark 10, 15. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus is out doing ministry. He's teaching. He's healing people. I mean, he's building up a following. People have heard about him. He does the miraculous. He teaches with authority. There's something different about Jesus. And the scene that Mark tells us in Mark chapter 10, just before 17, is the scene of all these people bringing children to Jesus. For Jesus to bless these children. And the disciples, like any good security, are like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. He has people to heal. He has things to teach. And he can't do what he needs to do because all these people keep swarming him with their kids. But Jesus knows what's on their their mind. Jesus hears the words that they speak. And Jesus rebukes them. And then he tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, that unless someone receives the kingdom of God like a little child, they will not inherit salvation. Unless someone receives the kingdom of God like a little child, they will not inherit salvation. And here's the universal truth that everyone understands in our society, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And that's kids are dependent upon everything. Kids need everything given to them. 
Kids can't buy anything. They don't have any money in and of themselves. Kids don't deserve anything. Kids need everything given to them. And we understand this as a society. Because when we see situations where kids aren't given the, the protection, the provision that they need, it breaks our hearts. And it causes us to be outraged. This is a universal understanding in our society that kids need to be protected. Kids need to be provided for. Kids need provision. They, in and of themselves, they can't offer that. It must be given to them. And the message that Jesus is getting across here is that the kingdom of heaven cannot be bought. You can't earn your way into a relationship with God. It isn't because of something that you do to deserve it. It is offered to you and it is offered to everyone as a gift. But unless you take the posture of a child and recognize, I just have to receive it. You're never going to get it. And the man that comes and encounters Jesus he, he, he's heard this, but he says, this is different. That's for them. That's for them. But, but what about me? There's got to be something that I can do to earn it. There's got to be something that I can do to buy it. There's got to be something that I can do to deserve it. It's got to be different with me. That's the crux of what's going on here. The question of the man is, but what about me? What can I do? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now Jesus is gauging where the man was here. No good except God. It points him in the correct direction of the answer, but still it has to be a personal conclusion. I grew up and my mom was a first grade teacher and it was terrible. Let me tell you, it was terrible. Not only could I not get away with anything at school and then, I mean, she would know about it before she got home because of inner school mail and the whole intercom system where they could just buzz into the classroom. I mean, it was terrible. Not only that, but anytime I would need help on my homework, I'd be like, hey, mom, how do you spell? And I'd ask her a word and she'd be like, I don't know, sound it out. And I'd be like, well, if I wanted to sound it out, I would have just sounded it out. How about you just help me? That's the reason that I asked you. How do you spell this word? And she would never tell me how to spell the stupid word. And it was so infuriating and so frustrating. Just give me the answer. And she wouldn't. And Jesus does the exact same thing here. He points him in the direction. But he wants him to arrive at the conclusion on his own. And then Jesus continues, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And Jesus reminds them that God has already made known his expectations. God has already made his expectations known. And he said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He says, I've done it. I've done it. All those commandments you just rattled off. 
I've done all of those things. I've kept them all from my youth. But here's the reality. Externally, maybe he has. But we all know from the Ten Commandments. We all know from the Old Testament. That outwardly, we can express ourselves in a certain way. But our inward reality can be much different. We know that about ourselves personally. Like we may have everybody else fooled, but we know inwardly what's really going on. We know the struggles. We know what we face inwardly. This is why earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he was talking about things, he said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, any man who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And it's like, well, congratulations, we're all adulterers. Every single one of us. It says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you the truth, anyone who's angry at his brother has committed murder in his heart. Now, congratulations, we're all murderers. See, the point of the, the, point of the Ten Commandments, the point of the Old Testament was never about just conforming externally. The point is showing us that inwardly we don't measure up to the holiness and the standard of God, which is perfection. And the man knows. Everybody could look at my life and it's exemplary by what I put outwardly. But something's still missing. You say, well, how do you know that, Brian? He's here having this conversation with Jesus. There's something missing, and he knows there's something missing in his life. Going through the motions of an outward fate is not enough. It's not enough. And Jesus, looking at him, Loved him. And I, I'm just going to stop right there. We're going we're gonna to tear apart 21 a little bit more here in, in a second, but I just need to stop right here for just a minute. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Here is someone who didn't have the answer. Here is someone who wasn't following Jesus. And what are we told? That Jesus loves him. Sometimes people will ask, well, do we know that, that God loves sinners? Do we know that, that Jesus loves people that don't follow him? The answer is absolutely. They're like, prove it. Okay, Mark 10, 21. There you go. There's your proof. That Jesus loves this man who hasn't made the decision to follow him, who is lost in his sin. And God loves him. Don't ever question God's love for you. Don't ever question God's love for people who are far from him. We're told by Mark 10, 21, that God indeed loves them. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And this is one of the most misunderstood things that Jesus has ever, ever taught by our culture and our society. 
And if you're a proponent of class warfare, you are latching on to this verse. And you're like, see, see, there it is. There it is. This is what Jesus is all about. Jesus was a communist. And here's the proof of it right here. Right here. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is this the point? Is it wrong to be wealthy? Does God hate the rich? Is everyone who follows Jesus required to sell all of their possessions and take a vow of poverty? The answer of Jesus, let me just say this, the answer of Jesus reveals the reality that was only revealed inwardly. That's the reason that Jesus went here. It reveals the reality that was only revealed inwardly in the man's life. That's the whole reason Jesus went here. But there's still the question of what does Jesus mean? And if you want to know the answer to that question, I'm not going to tell you right now. You're just going to have to wait. And then we go on to verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here we see one of the most heartbreaking accounts, I believe, in all of Scripture. Jesus said, hey, follow me. Here's what I want you to do. And he factored the balance sheet in his mind. Factored through the savings account, the brokerage account, a couple properties, the boat, the jet. He said, nope. It's too much. And the reason I find this to be one of the saddest accounts for us in all the scripture is because it's so prevalent today in our society. The people want Jesus, but they want Jesus on their own terms. They want Jesus, but they want the parts of Jesus that they're comfortable with. And any, anything that Jesus said that they don't agree with or that makes them uncomfortable or that's countercultural, they try to sanitize or they try to ignore. And it's, I want this part of Jesus, but forget what Jesus is talking about over here. And I love this theme of Jesus, but not that one. And I'm just going to ignore that part and do this. And the reality is this, that we don't get to pick and choose what parts of Jesus we accept. We don't get to create God like we want God to look. We don't get to put God in our box. The question that every single one of us has to answer is will we follow God? But not the God that we want to follow. Will we follow God for who he is? parts that make us uncomfortable, the parts we don't understand. Are we willing? Because we don't get to create Jesus on our own terms. That's what the rich young man wanted to do. That doesn't work. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Which begs us to ask the question, is it even possible for rich people to go through heaven? I mean, you, you talk about a camel and the eye of a needle. That's a metaphor. Is, is it even possible? Is it even possible for the rich people to go to heaven? Is it wrong to be rich? Is it a sin to be wealthy? And some of you are like, phew, I've never been so happy to be poor in my life. And yet, let me just remind you that even if you're under the poverty line in this country, if you own clothes, if you've had more than one meal a day over the course of the last week, if you have a place to call home, even if you don't own it, you're in the top 20% of income earners in the world. So even if you're under the poverty level in our country, you don't get to pretend like this doesn't apply to you. Because globally, you're wealthy. You're rich. This has implications for you. So what does Jesus mean? And I want to invite you to remember the context. Remember the context of the question. And what Jesus has just gotten done saying that, that we didn't have time to look at, but just, just precedes this in Mark chapter 10. That unless you come to me, like a little child, and here's the problem with wealth. That we think there's a different set of rules. We think there's something that I can do to earn it. There's something that I can do to buy it. There's something that I can do that is dependent upon me. And rather than just receive the gift, which is the only way to salvation, rather than just receive that gift, we've, we've convinced ourselves we can work for it. We can deserve it. We can buy it. We can earn it. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You have to come to me like a little child. It is a gift. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? Jesus has given the answer. The problem is the rich man, he wanted a different answer. Now, if you've misunderstood this in your life, you aren't alone. You're in some pretty good company. And they were exceedingly astonished, Mark tells us, and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. No one in and of themselves. That's the answer. No one in and of themselves can be saved. With, with us, it is impossible. But with God offering us the gift of his grace, it is possible. And that gift is offered to anyone, to the poor, to the rich. It's offered to anyone. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything to follow you. Peter's like, hey, hey, God, you, you, 
remember us. Now, we, we've done it. We left our hometowns. Our families are, are behind. We're good, right? We good? Peter's just acting like a little teacher's pet here. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus reassures Peter and us all that the cost of following Jesus may appear great. But what Jesus was offering the rich young man was the greatest investment opportunity of his life. And sometimes that return is experienced in this world. But even if that return is experienced in this world, we're going to have problems with it. That's why Jesus mentions persecutions. There's going to be issues. But the ultimate return that Jesus promises is even greater than any blessing that we experience in this world. It's in the kingdom to come. For God is king. Evil is gone. And everything is renewed and restored as it was originally designed to be. Jesus concludes by saying this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says things are different in God's economy. Things are different in God's economy. And sadly, this is the last we hear of the rich young man. The decision that he made was that since he couldn't have Jesus on his own terms, he wouldn't follow God at all. We have no reason to believe that he changed his mind. A week ago at this time, I had absolutely no clue that the Oscars were last Sunday night. And frankly, even if I knew the Oscars was last Sunday night, I wouldn't have watched them. I think award shows are incredibly boring. Until last Sunday night, my friends started sending me texts of Japanese television feeds and Australian television feeds that showed some of what was edited out of the American broadcast of the Oscars of the Will Smith and Chris Rock altercation. I watched and, frankly, was entertained. <laughs> and I'm not trying to pile on Will Smith. Plenty of that's happened. But after the entertainment of what all went down ceased to amuse me, I started thinking about it from a human level. And as the memes came out and the different video angles and, and they showed all the different people and all their different responses to the slap heard around the world, started to look and I started to see how everything our culture celebrates, how everything our culture sells us, how everything we're told, this is the pinnacle of success and this is what you want to achieve and you want fame and you want riches, you want wealth, you want notoriety, 
You want the affection of your peers. You want to be celebrated. How everything our culture has told us, this is what you have to go after. He started to look around that room. While our culture sells us all of these things, the tragedy of many of their lives tells us the reality. It's quite different. And I don't mean to pile on to actors. Recent death of the Foo Fighters drummer, Taylor Hawkins. Of a suggested overdose. And how many musicians who've reached that pinnacle that most people only dream about. Only to find themselves unfulfilled. This isn't just a musician and an actor problem. How many athletes dazzle us with what they can do on the field or on the court who reach the highest levels of competition and who are miserable in every aspect of their being? How many artists go and and host thousands of dollars of of galas and, and have people come around and applaud what they create and are empty? unsatisfied and unfulfilled, and hedge managers who've made fortunes that even their grandchildren cannot spend and their lifetimes and yet lead existences where it isn't enough. And sports team owners who leave messes everywhere they go. problem is this. Our society, our culture tells us this is what to aim for. This is what you go after. This is success. This is when you've reached the pinnacle. This is what you want. This will provide fulfillment. But How many broken lives do we have to look at to see that it is a lie? And it is empty. And the offer of Jesus is this will cost you everything. And you don't get me on your own terms. But I will show you love. I will show you peace. I will show you fulfillment. I will give you purpose. And the question that you have to answer, and only you can answer, you and you alone, is what will you chase after? What will you choose? No one else can make that choice for you. The cost of Jesus is high. But it's the best investment you could ever make. But the choice is yours. What will you choose?
God, I pray that we would be people who unapologetically and unashamedly follow you. God, in a time where people want aspects of you, but want to dictate who you are on their own terms, follow parts and pieces of you, but not who you are wholly. Pray, God, we would just reject that. We would recognize that we don't get to pick and choose. And even if we don't like it, even if we don't understand it, you are God. And we are not. God, I pray for the person who's on the fence. Because they see what's been sold to them their entire lives. And, and they've been told this will lead to fulfillment. This will lead to peace. And truth be told, they're empty. God, I pray today would be the day they say no more. Today's the day I choose Jesus. God, help us. Help us love people with the same love that you have for them and share the hope that you offer with all we encounter, that your gift is available to anybody who'd take it. It can't be bought, can't be deserved, it can't be earned, can't be bargained for. must be received. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for offering us hope, offering us peace, offering us redemption and freedom. It's with grateful hearts that we do pray. Amen.